0: The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Our scripture reading is from John chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. A little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, "What is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father, so they were asking, they were saying, what does he mean by a little while, we do not know what he is talking about, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Thank you, Matt.
1: You can have a seat. We were singing that song, Sarah and I, this morning, How Firm a Foundation, on our way here. And uh, I was like, that would be a perfect song for us to sing today. I was, and uh, Phoebe read my mind, so uh, I appreciate that. Well, if you haven't already, uh, turn your Bibles to John 16. We are continuing our series uh, through John, and we are currently still in the upper room discourse just hours away from the death of christ a short recap as we've been in the past couple chapters uh, going back to john 15 the first half of that we see one of the great i am statements from our savior i am the vine my father is the vine dresser i In the branch, I am the branch. We are the branches. We rest in Christ. He saves us, justifies us, sanctifies us, glorifies us. The Father prunes us, cuts off dead branches, and throws them into the fiery furnace. Then Christ warns us in the second half of chapter 15 that we will indeed be hated by our world. We will be hated by non-believers. The gospel will be hated and they will be hated because they first hated Christ. Then we enter into chapter 16. The first 15 verses, Christ tells his disciples of the work of the Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit to be the, the helper, the comforter, the advocate. Ephesians 1 speaks of Him as the guarantee of our salvation until we have to acquire acquire an inheritance in heaven. Now we come to the uh, latter portion of 16. And I'm really looking forward to this message uh, as I've been studying over this past week, week and a half, reading over this text, studying it. Um, I've been... Really excited to preach this sermon, and I pray, Lord willing, that will happen. Um, but I, I, I would be remiss to say that I'm not, uh, I've been trying to not jump the gun. I love John 17. John 17 is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, it reveals so much truth to us. Uh, it, it's, it's Christ's high priestly prayer. Uh, and we see the humanity of Christ on full display, I think, uh, for us. We observe the workings of his relationship to the Father. Uh, and we see how Jesus expresses his, expresses his love for us uniquely, individually, as Christians. As those whom God has given him. But... I and we here at CBC believe in verse-by-verse preaching and the the expositing of the word. And so uh, we are going to do that this morning. And I'm really, again, really excited about this passage. Um, But before I do, will you bow with me in prayer this morning? Oh, Father, how we need you. Every minute of every hour of every day, we lean on your grace. Lord, despite our sin, despite our evil deeds, our evil thoughts, our evil desires, you draw us here as a body to worship you, to come before your word, to hear the teaching and preaching of what you have for us, of your holy word. Lord, extend your grace to us this morning. Be with us as we seek to know you and know your word more fully. And be with me, Lord, a broken vessel as I seek to proclaim such truth. The gospel message. We pray this in your son's name, amen. So, I think this text... For us, in 2023, I almost said 2021, I don't know why, 2023 serves, a, I think, a dual purpose. What I mean by that? I think, I think there's an immediate context here that we see, an immediate context for the disciples. But we also see a context for the future. A context pertaining to not just the disciples then, in the immediate future, but for Christians throughout the end of the age. I think we see that in verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. Two times a little while is brought up here. The first one, a little while, you will see me no longer. This, of course, is pertaining to his crucifixion, his death on the cross. You will see me no longer. Uh, I can imagine a parents, you're dropping off your kids when they're young, perhaps at your grandparents or, a, or a aunt and uncle or a friend that you trust. You're out for the week or the weekend, and you say, all right, kids, we're going away. Mom and dad are going away. Be on your best behavior. We'll be back in a couple days. I would think, I don't have kids, but I would think that their initial reaction would be like, what? No, don't go, don't go. It's fear, it's fear. its They don't want to leave their father and mother. The comfort, the protection of having their parents there. And they begin to cry and whimper again out of fear. Unknown. What is going to happen? And I can imagine th- th- that feeling of fear of, I will be here no longer. They're, they're their mentor, their teacher, their friend, their savior will be with them no longer. Sadness, fear, anxious, confusion. But then the second, a little while we get to, which is why I think we, it's this, this text and this whole message, I think, um, in passage has a, Dual context. The second little while statements is 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 what hints at I think. It, it, it first we see as it says again and again in a little while, you will see me. There's two thoughts on on what this points to, and I think two, both of them hold uh, solid and equal validity. The first is the resurrection of Christ and the reappearance of. Jesus to his disciples. Skipping ahead to John chapter 20, we see that. It says in verse 19, On the evening of that day, the first of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. For you forgive the sins of many. For if you forgive the sins of many, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So I think Jesus most assuredly had this reappearance in mind. When he said, and again in a little while, I or you will see me here in 16 verse 16. So his disciples were still unsure though of, and we'll get into the second nature of that in a little bit. His disciples were unsure though of still what Jesus was meaning by these words as we read in 17 and 18. What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, well, he didn't say that in verse sixteen, did he? No, he says that earlier in uh, verse ten, starting in verse eight. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and ju- concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So that's what they're referencing to—just about six chapters, seven chapters, back. And so they are really uh, just unsure of of what is going to happen. And Christ tries to reassure them uh, and know this. I think of uh, I had a I had a moment. I think it was my calculus two class, uh, senior year of high school, given a pop quiz. And all, all of the students, all of us are looking around at each other, freaking out, not knowing what to do. It's was like, uh, did not study for this, did not, uh, I'm still trying to do makeup homework because I did not do my homework. And um, my professor, she says, don't worry, it's open book and open note. <laughs> that was, ooh, that saved me that day. But um, I can imagine there being, Jesus kind of having that understanding of, let me speak clearly to you. And so he does. Verse 19, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but the sorrow will turn into joy. there are a handful of unique characteristics that I think are to the Christian life. And one of them is long-suffering. The Christian life is one of suffering. It is one of long-suffering. It is one where, whether it's earthly things, spiritual things, Secular things, whatever it may be. The Christian life is one of suffering. Partly, because we're looking forward to Christ. We're looking forward to the second coming of Christ, which I think points to this kind of dual nature of this text. The again in a little while and you will see me. I think for us, it's the second coming of Christ. And so, I think that the Christian life is one of suffering. And, and I think if you've been a Christian long enough, which I think is probably, you know, a few hours, you will realize that. That this, we're not taken out of this world, right? The famous saying, we are in the world but not of it. And being in the world, we experience suffering, we experience pain, we experience death, grief, disease, cancer, you name it. The Christian life is one of suffering. But then, and and he goes on to labor this point in verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. Sorrow that her hour has come. I think my parents are watching, so I, hopefully they're not, hopefully I can share this story. If not, I'll just ask for forgiveness later. But the, when when I was born, I was a C-section birth, and uh, I don't know if you've ever had a C-section. I have not and will not, but uh, my mother has explained, you know, and You know, reminisces on that time. And and, anyway, whenever you look back on things, a lot of times they're romanticized. This is not. uh, It was painful. Uh, She hated it. It was miserable. And um, my dad, during the birthing process, being, you know, the wonderful man that he is, made in God's image, uh, you know, as my mother is giving birth, she is squeezing his left hand. And as she's squeezing, my father goes, "Hey, Leslie, can can you not squeeze so hard? You're kind of pinching my finger with my wedding ring." <sighs> my mother—I didn't—I ex- don't remember this, but she was livid, screaming, uh, n- nice words, some not nice words, I think. But nevertheless, uh, the pain uh, was excruciating for her, and um, that just kind of, you know. little cherry on top for her to just kind of explode. But here we see, and I think we all understand, even whether believer or not, we understand the pain of childbirth. We understand the the wear and tear that a woman goes through when giving birth. And uh, I think us men would like to claim that we could handle it, but... uh, I think deep down, if we swallowed our pride, we could, we would, we would acknowledge that uh, that is not a pain that we can endure. But um, I think as he's as he's wrapping this up, this is again another uh, another figure of speech that he's using as we'll get into the later chapters of twenty-five uh, through thirty-three. But we see that sorrow and grief, weeping and lament is real in. Christian life. It is described as one who's long-suffering. We have peace. We have joy waiting for us. We have an inheritance waiting for us until we acquire possession of it. The Spirit is preserving us for that. But in the meantime, heartache and headache come. Um, It can be a little minor inconvenience, I think. It could be a major thing. Nevertheless, Trials and tribulations come our way. And Jesus experienced this, right? We look a few chapters back in John 11. We read the account of Lazarus dying before Jesus could arrive. Then, sitting with Mary and Martha at the tomb site, we read of the shortest verse in all of Scripture, Jesus wept. Here's how one pastor puts this into perspective for us. Who in this story, John 11, who in this story knew the ending before anyone? Jesus. The whole time Jesus knew how it all go down, and yet one of the most remarkable things about this story is that knowing exactly what he was about to do, Jesus sits down and weeps. You see, a strong confidence in the end of the story does not undo or justify the absence of grief in the middle. A mature faith, adds its tears to the sadness in our world. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who mourn, all while not losing confidence in how that sadness will eventually be overcome in him. What's interesting about that quote is that is a quote from Pastor Chad Scruggs, Senior Pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church. Weeks, just a matter of weeks before his daughter would be killed in the Covenant School shooting. Preaching on John 11 and preaching here, in looking at this text, we acknowledge and feel sorrow. No matter how peaceful or minimal our life may live, it always seems to follow us. And I and I seem to be someone who is susceptible to being almost too optimistic. Uh, I'm always a glass half full. And I think the temptation for us as Christians is to can be in some way or something, maybe not this explicitly, but to go well. I understand this hard, but don't worry. It gets better. Don't worry about it. Rejoice always. As the epistle says. Rejoice, I say, rejoice always. So, no, no need for sorrow. No need for tears. I get that, but no need for that. Well, John 11 points to actually a, a different teaching. Christ was the definition there of what it means to be Compassionate. To be compassionate literally means to suffer with. To suffer with somebody after going through tribulation. And ultimately, however, we can and ultimately must look to the end of the story. Because this is what Jesus has promised with his very words. It's been about nine months since my grandmother passed away. Uh, Unnoticed or uh, uh, not planned, uh, she passed away from a sudden stroke. And um, I remember being home and there was a dual feeling that I had, one of peace and joy, knowing that my grandmother was a believer and is now in heaven in perfect union uh, with, our, with our Creator, with God, but also the sorrow of grief that you know, um, she won't be at my wedding. she won't meet my, my children, Lord willing. She won't um, see those things. And, and i sleeping in the basement of my parents' home and waking up in the middle of the night hearing my mother wail, wail. And just angry, and uh, a, a cry that I have never heard from her. Going over to my grandma and grandpa's house, and my grandpa being there alone, seeing him there alone, still seeing him there alone. It, it, you can't ignore the grief, you can't ignore the sorrow. But verses 22 and 20, verses 20 through 22 um, reveal that sorrow yet rejoicing. That sorrow now, grief now, pain now, but that will be not just not just done away with, but turned into joy. It's not that the grief will go away, whether in this life, in this life, because it won't but it will be turned into joy. I think, that's a, I think that's a unique perspective. But I think in the immediate context of verses 20 through 22, I think it reveals for those in that time what true believers or who the true believers actually were. I will say to you, you will, re- you will weep and lament, you believers, you disciples, but the world w- will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When Christ is on the cross, the disciples seeing their rabbi, their savior, die for them. That alone is overwhelming, I can imagine. But also, then you add in the people mocking, people spitting on him, people throwing things at him, people rejoicing in the death of their friend, in the death of their Savior. And so, the death of Christ, and I think his ultimately his resurrection as well, revealed in that moment uh, who was and who was not of Christ, who enjoyed the things of him, who enjoyed being healed by him, who enjoyed uh, perhaps the good nuggets of wisdom that he would give Enjoyed maybe the competitions that he would have with the Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders and the, and the chief priests of that day. But he wasn't their Lord. He wasn't their Savior. So then we read in verse 22, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. That is distinguishing from the non-believer. The non believers' joy in the death of Christ is no longer. Yeah, that lasted a couple days. They had their fun while it lasted. Ours is eternal. And ultimately, theirs can be eternal too by faith. But we have a joy that is eternal. And as we keep on reading verses 25 through 33, pertaining to mostly parables. We just got through a long series of that in student ministries. But it also speaks to other symbolic forms. Jesus calling himself the bread of life. John 15, I am the vine. Those those types of um, symbolic forms of speech. Christ has been talking to his disciples in that way. And the meaning of such, and specifically the parables, those were for us, for the believers, for the disciples, and yet, they could, be, they could be easily, and are easily, misunderstood. And they were misunderstood at, in this time. And so, what Jesus assures us here, assures his disciples, he's no longer going to be, you know, beating around the bush. He will speak plainly to them, and he speaks plainly to us. We'll come back uh, to verses uh, 26 and um, 27 and 28, but then then we get to verse 29. The disciples now seem to to have a firm grasp on all that uh, Christ has done, all that he has said, and all that he is. Finally, clear speech. You are speaking plain to us. Where has this been the entire time? Right, what what do they say in verse uh, 29? Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Pay attention to what they say in verse 30. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Do you notice something there? To me, I see headspace. It's all knowledge. It's all brain. It's all what they know. The disciples claim to have faith in Jesus. I'm not saying that, that they didn't. But they claim to have faith in, in, in Jesus as the true Messiah because of what they know, what they know about Him. There seems to be yet a true grasp of who Christ is, and ultimately, they would see that at his death and at his resurrection by the gift of the Spirit as, as we see in John 20. Now they know because of all the tests that he's gone through, right, with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders. Right now it's because, now what, because he's come out victorious? Because he beat these religious leaders in, in these contests? Sure, they came to the right conclusion. They came to the right conclusion about who Christ was, but perhaps not the correct mode or means. D.A. Carson, in in talking on this verse, the final sentence, though formally embracing a true conclusion, betrays just how feeble a foundation supports the immature faith that they have so far attained. This makes me think of a book uh, from J.I. Packer. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it. It's called Knowing God. And in the first part, first first section, it goes through a few chapters of this, he wrestles with the difference between to know God and to know about God. And that's a key difference. Um, I know a lot about my favorite baseball player. Sammy Sosa had an 18-year career. He batted about 280, at just over 600 home runs. Uh, I think it was like a 60 wins above replacement. Uh, and, and technically, never tested positive for steroids. So, uh, now, my students and Ron Roberts know this already. But um, I used to walk around claiming to know Sammy Sosa. He was my cousin when I was three years old. Now, if you took two, you know, one look at us, you would see, no, we're in fact not cousins. But um, though I know lots about him and his career, particularly, I don't know him. I don't know what he does. I don't know what he believes. I don't know what he thinks. I don't know his family. I've never, I never met the guy. To know someone is to have a relationship with them. To know someone is to have a relationship with them. To know them inwardly. Not to just know them outwardly, but to know them inwardly. To know God is to have a relationship with him. It's built upon Christ. It's built upon by grace, through faith in Christ Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can know a lot of things about God, can't we? We can know a lot of things about what God did when he created the world, if in fact he did. We can know a lot of things about Jesus and the miracles that the Bible supposedly said he performed. We can can know a lot of things about him. We can have a lot of knowledge about him, but we may not have a wholehearted trust As the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, what is true faith, not one of just knowledge, but as it says, a wholehearted trust and in faith in Jesus Christ, in Christ alone for our salvation. Yet, these disciples seemed only focused on what they knew about Christ, I think, think it would be fair to say to say that they didn't know Jesus. That they knew their Savior. But here, we see that I think they're focused on what they know about him. And, yet, and Christ seemed not to uh, be, be tricked by this. As he says in verse 31, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own town, and you will leave me alone. You will abandon me. What do we know about Peter? Oh, Peter. You will deny me three times? No, I won't. Surely, he does. They denied him. They, for- they forsaked Jesus. They went about their ways. They hid in fear from the Jews. After killing Christ, desiring to kill all of his followers as well. And they hid in fear. They ran away. And so, Christ is clearly alluding to this here in verse 32. But what does he say at the end? Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. This may sound like a contradiction. Why? Mark 15, verse 34. Starting in verse 33, When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, "Eloi, Eloi, lema sabactami," which means, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" This seems, it might seem like a contradiction, but we know God's word, and we know that God does not contradict Himself. Christ endured a real, true separation from the Father on the cross. God cannot be in the presence of ungodliness, of unrighteousness. And so when God was, when the Father was pouring out his full wrath on sin, of sin on Christ, on his Son, Christ was separated from the Father. The wrath of God was poured out on him and it seemed as if God had abandoned him. Ultimately, we know with the resurrection that Christ would be raised on the third day and now sits indeed at God's right hand to judge the living and the dead. But Christ has endured much in his ministry here, hasn't he? He's endured fleeing from persecution. He's endured the temptation of Satan. He's endured hunger and thirst. But he's also endured pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain, suffering, grief, heartache. And yet, how does this section end? It's one of the most popular verses, I think, for us as Christians. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. Peace in a chaotic world. Peace in a world that seems to have no order. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart. Be encouraged, strengthened, empowered, confident, at peace, content with this truth. As Paul says in Romans eight eighteen, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing. With what? With the glory that is to be revealed to us. Friends, we can affirm and know, not just know about, but truly believe. Christ has defeated evil. Death holds no dominion. Sin has no reign over us. Christ reigns over all things. He reigns over evil deeds, over evil doers, death, and most certainly our pain and suffering, most certainly our sorrow. These disciples would go on to be martyred for their faith. Peter, believing he is unworthy to be killed like his Savior, is hung on the cross upside down. Yet Christ commanded them and commands you and me this morning to take heart, knowing he had overcome the world, and therefore we echo Paul. What does Paul say? Philippians one. Verses 19 through 21. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. As we turn our hearts towards communion this morning, I want us to go back to John 16, verses 23 through 27. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask, the Father, in my name, he will give it to you. They have been going to Christ for all things, for all knowledge, for all wisdom, for all ways of salvation, and rightfully so. But why not the Father? Continue reading. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, And you will receive that your joy may be full. Again in verse 26, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Why? For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Father was was and is unapproachable because of our sin. God is holy, holy, holy. You and I are unholy, unholy, unholy. Vile, wretched, sinners. And yet, we can now go to God the Father himself. Not through a prophet who just brings the word of God but doesn't do anything with it. No, we have Christ now who has not just given the words of the prophet but fulfilled those words. We have not just a priest who is mediating on our behalf in some type of earthly, imperfect way. No, now we have Christ. Christ is our one and perfect mediator once and for all. We can go to the Father any moment of any time. Why? Because when he sees You, when he sees me, he sees the robe of righteousness. He sees the garments of salvation. He sees Christ on the cross. Our sin was imputed to him. And his robe of righteousness, as Isaiah 61 talks about, was imputed to us. When God the Father sees us, he sees his son. We have found our mediator. Our mediator has come. Our intercessor is here. He sits not not far off at the right hand of God. He is there making intercession for us. And if that's not enough, we have the spirit who helps us in our weakness, perfecting our prayers as they go up to our Father, making them pleasing to His listening ears. We have found our mediator. Christ left the disciples for a short while. And what did it gain them? Everlasting life. It gained them eternal security with the Father. Christ was the perfect prophet, the perfect priest. And the perfect king. He did not come to overthrow nations and governments and kingdoms. He overthrew sin. He overthrew the dominion of evil and bought us with a price. He has given us a direct line to our creator through prayer and through worship of him. If you believe that this morning, that is you. If you see and hear this message, and I believe that by the grace and power of God that we all have heard the gospel this morning, that if you can profess, not just with your mouth, but with your heart, that Christ is indeed your one and only mediator, that the blood that was shed on the cross was shed for you, and that nothing you can do whether before or after being saved, can save you, sanctify you, make you a better person, make you a better Christian, if you believe in Christ, this table's for you. This is a family meal. If that is not you this morning, if you are someone who does not see Christ as your mediator, if you see yourself as your mediator, if you see your works as your mediator, if you are unsure why we even need a mediator in the first place. Perhaps you're even one who would see the death of Christ and rejoice. If that is you this morning, know, th- know that I am grateful that you are here. I, again, as I said, I believe that by the grace and power of God, you and I have heard the message of the gospel. But do not partake of this meal, Please. You put yourself in a place of hypocrisy, claiming to believe something that you ultimately do not, and you are living in unrepented sin. But um, we would love, I would love, Jeremy, my, myself, the elders, really anyone that looks, you know, like they've been here before, uh, go and please talk to them. Um. And we would love to share with you more about the gospel message, about how you can share in this great uh, news with us that we, sinful man, have been reconciled to the Holy God by grace through faith, through the power of the Spirit, by the atoning work of His Son, Jesus Christ. If you can profess that this morning, let us come and partake of this meal together. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for Christ. We give you thanks that in this very moment we can approach you. We can enter your throne room with boldness, with confidence. With assurance that despite even our sin now you see Christ. You see his holiness and his righteousness on us. Oh Lord, this world is full of grief and sorrow. We experience much pain and tribulation. Things that perhaps may never go away. But Lord, as you said to Paul, you say to us, your grace is sufficient for me. Your grace is sufficient in the midst of our pain and strife, in the midst of our sorrow and grief, and of our our weeping and lamenting. Your grace is sufficient for us because of Christ, because of the breaking of his body and the dying on the cross, the shedding of his blood, and ultimately his resurrection. Lord, we pray all this and give you all the glory. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee or online at cbcnashville.org.